This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, what should the world do about the terrorist threat from Yemen? I don't think we want to open up another front there, and nor do the Yemenis want us to do that. So we've got to find other ways of doing these things. And a new deal, a new era of cooperation. But can we trust the French? There is a, a long track record of duplicity on the French part. BFBS. Headlines. Liam Fox has accused Labour of leaving a toxic legacy of debt that's threatened Britain's ability to keep its people safe. The Defence Secretary's been speaking in a Commons debate on last month's Strategic Defence and Security Review. He's promised cuts won't affect frontline operations in Afghanistan. A French minister's claiming one of the bombs intercepted from Yemen last week was minutes away from exploding. So far, there's been no comment from Britain or the US. Qantas has grounded its entire fleet of Airbus A380 planes after an engine blew out on one of them. It had to make an emergency landing in Singapore. Ofsted says it's changed the way it inspects nurseries after criticism of the way a woman was able to abuse children. A serious case review found Little Ted's nursery in Plymouth was an ideal environment for Vanessa George with a lack of supervision. And Channel 4's main news presenters refusing to back down in a row over whether he should be wearing a poppy. Jon Snow says he only wears one on Remembrance Sunday and says he won't give in to what he's called poppy fascism. Few analysts were surprised when Yemen emerged as the likely source of the latest terrorist bomb plot. The major security alert is underway in both the UK and the US after reports of suspicious packages at airports on both sides of the Atlantic. Law enforcement officials are investigating packages at East Midlands Airport in the UK and on board cargo planes at airports in the eastern US cities of Philadelphia and Newark, New Jersey. That's how the news broke almost a week ago. Two bombs were found, one in the UK, the other in Dubai, both heading for the United States and both apparently sent from Yemen. The country's been targeted for a while now by al-Qaeda, no surprise given its strategically important position on one of the world's busiest shipping routes. The Prime Minister knows it's a threat that can't be ignored. We have to deal with the root causes and there is now a very worrying strain of al-Qaeda terrorism coming out of the Yemen. One of the problems is we need to make sure it is the priority for the Yemeni government, who are also dealing with other problems in their country. So is Yemen fast becoming the next front in the global war on terror? The next Afghanistan, the new chief of the Defence Staff General, Sir David Richards, thinks not. It mustn't become so, and we've learnt lots of lessons over the last ten years. I don't think we want to open up another front there, and nor do the Yemenis want us to do that. So we've got to find other ways of doing these things. Clearly, the Yemeni government doesn't believe it needs our help, and they're extremely on side, like most uh, Islamic nations are, actually. So I think our role is to remain very close to them, to help them where they most need it, and in the meanwhile, focus our efforts on Afghanistan and assisting Pakistan to make sure that they don't uh, become the threat that Yemen clearly is beginning to be. 
So how can we stabilise Yemen, stop the militants gaining a stronger hold there and avoid another overseas military operation? The think tank Chatham House staged a conference on the country's future this week and Nadine Marushi, the editor of Gulf States Newsletter, was there. She's on the line now. Nadine, thanks for your time today. We're told Yemen's on the verge of collapse. How did it happen and why is it so attractive to al-Qaeda? Yeah, um... Well, I mean, I would be very careful about saying that Yemen is on the verge of collapse. I would rather say that actually it's in a very fragile situation at the moment. Um, The country is facing uh, a number of really big challenges. Um, It's one of the poorest countries in the Middle East. Um, Two-thirds of the government's revenue um, is from oil, and this is fast running out. In about six years' time, Yemen can actually become an oil importer. And when you realize that about 30% of the budget actually goes to paying salaries, and it's a major employer, um, it begs the question of where the government's going to find the money to do that when oil runs out. Um, Sana'a, the capital, could also become the world's first capital to run out of water. Um, added to the economic crisis, which is a major crisis there, um, you've got an insurgency in the north, um, known as the Houthi Rebellion, and a secession movement in the south. Um, and then, um, and you know, we shouldn't forget that Yemen has only been a unified state since 1990, then on top of all this, you've got a relatively small number of al-Qaeda operatives that are posing increasing challenges to the international community. Indeed, and fertile breeding ground for al-Qaeda. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, the way al-Qaeda and Yemen are discussed, it's, it's a really complex relationship. I mean, they have really strong and practical ties uh, to Yemen that date back to the Cold War, you know, um, bin Laden is of um, Yemeni Syrian descent, um, and there were many Yemenis who fought um, Soviet troops in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, Yemenis remains the largest ethnic group uh, still detained in Guantanamo. Um, so Yemeni veterans, actually, who returned from Afghanistan played a really big role in the evolution of al-Qaeda. And then al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is sort of an affiliate. Um, so it's actually, it's much more homegrown, if you like, but, but I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't want to suggest that Yemenis are, are all part of al-Qaeda, but there's a, a much more, a deeper route to it that, that needs to be tackled. And, and at this Chatham House conference on Yemen, the International Development Minister, Alan Duncan, called for intervention to stop it becoming yeah. a failed state, Yemen. C- can we do that without committing military resources, do you think? Um, absolutely. Uh, Alan Duncan made a, a really good speech, and... Um, he made some really good points. One of them was that um, any effort on pre- preventing state failure now is a million times better than, um, than the effort that would be needed to cope with state failure later. Um, and I would really agree with that. Um, you know, there have been some really positive developments there, such as the implementation of an international monetary fund program to reform the economy, um, an agreement to a ceasefire with the Houthi rebels, and uh, they're launching a process of national dialogue. And so any help to confront all those three challenges, political, economic, security now, would be you know, beneficial to all instead of you know, going down the military intervention route. Christopher Lee is our defence analyst and he's here in the studio as well. Uh, Christopher, what are British forces doing in Yemen at the moment? Um, well, Can you tell us? No. I mean, officially there are no British forces, but I mean, there are CIA, uh, there are special forces in, in Yemen. It's one of the uh, guys in the special forces said, well, you know, it's, we're, we're not there, we're not mob-handed. But we've got to be there because, you know, Nadine is absolutely right saying it's such a complex thing. The guy that runs uh, Yemen has been running it for 31, 32 years, and he's sort of playing off all sorts of sides. 
we bought money in there. We also bought help in there with intelligence gathering. And so we are supplying, for example, intelligence uh, to uh, their forces, and they say, right, you can go and perhaps uh, uh, mount a little operation there, and we've got special forces, and the Americans have got special forces, CIA especially, uh, in there helping out with it. And Nadine, do you think what's happening in Yemen, if we plough in more aid, coupled with uh, special forces at work on covert operation, that this could form a blueprint for how to deal with these kind of problems in the future in, in other states? Yeah, um... I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the donor community has a really big role to play um, in trying to, you know, implement projects on the ground. Um, I think I think a lot of, um, I think effort should also be made to working with Yemenis in the diaspora. You know, the government's really crying out for human capital, for people who are educated with skills that can go back and can work um, to help build up their institutions. And I think if we can help also in that way, there's a huge Yemeni community in England. Um, that that would be a really uh, a way forward, but also really helping donor assistance would be really good. And also just trying to rethink a, um, about government. And, um, you know, it's a very tribal structure in Yemen. And I think, um, you know, trying to work really from the grassroots down to prevent, um, you know, to help resilience to terrorism rather than from, you know, top down. I think that, that would be a really a good way forward. All right. All right. Nadine Marushi, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Still to come, why China has a stranglehold on the trade in rare earth minerals. And what does Britain's defence deal with France really mean? The French, I know because I've spoken to them, see this as the beginnings of growing an organic, wider European defence cooperation. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It's two years since Barack Obama was elected on a wave of euphoria and optimism, but things couldn't have been much more different at this week's U.S. midterm elections. A comprehensive victory for the Republicans taking back control of the House of Representatives, the biggest transfer of seats there from one side to the other in the modern era. John Boehner will be Speaker of the new Republican House. The American people are demanding a new way forward in Washington. I'm here to tell you tonight that our new majority will be prepared to do things differently, to take a new approach that hasn't been tried in Washington before by either party. It starts with cutting spending instead of increasing it. Reducing the size of government instead of increasing it. And reforming the way Congress works and giving the government back to the American people. The Republicans' success was in part down to the rise of the Tea Party movement, dedicated to rolling back many of President Obama's ideas and to making government much smaller. Rand Paul, one of the founders of the Tea Party, is now a senator. We've come to take our government back! The American people are unhappy with what's going on in Washington. 11% of the people approve of what's going on in Congress. But tonight, there's a Tea Party tidal wave, and we're sending a message to them. President Obama's Democrats held on to the Senate, but things will get much tougher now. Some election nights are more fun than others. Some are exhilarating. Uh, some are humbling. People are frustrated. They're deeply frustrated. They want jobs to come back faster. They want paychecks to go further, and they want the ability to give their children the same chances and opportunities as they've had in life. 
So how does Barack Obama turn things round in time for his re-election bid in 2012? We're joined by Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Southern Utah University. Thanks for your time today. It's a stunning turnaround from the scenes surrounding President Obama's election to this week's results. How's it all happened? Well, when we look at it in comparison to uh, what, uh, what brought Obama into office, of course, it is a stark comparison. But that was an on- anomaly in many, many, many ways. Um, so it, it kind of accentuates what's going on right now or what just barely happened uh, as maybe bigger than it really is. Um, I might be wrong, but I might want to uh, make reference to a tempest in a teacup, because despite all of the hype, uh, all of the business about the Tea Party and uh, this this kind of thing, it's still pretty much American politics as usual. Um, having the party out of the White House make a comeback in the off-year uh, election is, is really pretty common stuff. Now, the number of seats that the Republicans gained in the House, that is significant. But still, we've got Obama in the White House, the Democrats hold the Senate, uh, and uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's politics, as usual, in America. So how significant do you think the Tea Party is, and what will its members do in Congress? That is the big unknown. And in fact, there are enough, a number of Republicans, including John Boehner, who are a little nervous about this because uh, uh, in some ways they, they really don't know what these conservatives are going to do. Are they going to be loyal to the Republican Party? Are indeed they going to follow the lead of John Boehner as Speaker of the House, should that happen? Or are they going to go their, uh, their own way? Uh, now, there are some similarities here uh, between what's going on now and uh, the beginning of the 20th century uh, when Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt uh, introduced the Progressive Party, uh, the Bull Moose Party, uh, which, of course, uh, virtually uh, caused the downfall of the uh, Republican uh, uh, Party going into uh, the election with Woodrow Wilson. So how do you see all this playing out? I mean, Obama's obviously going to try and concentrate on winning back supporters. He's going to have to concentrate more on domestic agenda and, and perhaps uh, leave international issues like Afghanistan t- to one side, you think? You know, it's, it, one of the remarkable things about this election um, was how foreign affairs, uh, including Iraq and Afghanistan, were strangely missing from uh, any of the, uh, uh, the election hype, the debate, um, uh, even in the speeches uh, uh, made after uh, the election was coming to a close, um, uh, not much mention of the, these kinds of things. Now, what that tells us, of course, is the old political wisdom. It's the economy, stupid. We know that. But um, uh, these are things that cannot be ignored. Obama knows that. Uh, and I think Obama realizes that part of the key to his reelection is to continue doing a couple of the things that uh, he has been up to, and that is trying to uh, bring uh, conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan to some kind of a reasonable conclusion for the United States um, by reelection time. But again, um, he has to uh, continue to focus on uh, domestic economic issues uh, a- as well. The problem is going to be, and it's going to be doubly difficult for Obama now, anything he tries to do, there are going to be potential roadblocks by a Republican uh, House of Representatives, many of whom have vowed that their uh, job one for the next two years um, is nothing less than making sure that Obama is a one-term president. All right, Professor Michael Stathis there. We'll have to leave it. Thank you.
David Cameron calls it a new chapter in a long-running story, but Britain's new treaties on defence and nuclear cooperation with France are still a significant break with the past. There'll be a joint army expeditionary force and shared nuclear testing. Each nation will be able to use the other's aircraft carriers. Both countries are looking to save money, and on paper, this deal achieves significant savings. But are Britain and France such natural bedfellows? Paul Osborne reports. The French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, says the deal is unprecedented and David Cameron has no doubt it's the right thing to do. Britain and France have a shared history through two world wars. Our brave troops are fighting together every day in Afghanistan. This is a treaty based on pragmatism, not just sentiment. And I would like to thank Nicola for joining me in taking these bold and important steps which I believe will make our sovereign nations safer. Of course, there is another way of looking at it. Two countries who both want to be global players but increasingly find that they can't afford to be making the best of a bad situation. The leaders signed two treaties in London. One sets up a combined joint expeditionary force which is likely to involve around 5,000 soldiers from each side. The other, on combined nuclear testing, lasts for 50 years. France's Defence Minister Hervé Morin said the partnership could be disengaged if their respective interests diverge. And one Conservative MP, Bernard Jenkin, remains convinced we can't trust the French. There is a, a long track record of duplicity on the French part uh, when it comes to dealing with allies. We must never be under any illusion. The French act in their national interest, what they perceive to be their national interest, and they're frequently different from ours. I wonder whether they will lend us an aircraft carrier to go and protect the Falklands in a crisis. They certainly weren't much help during the Falklands crisis in 1982. Indeed, they were still trying to sell Exocet missiles to the Argentines. But that's nonsense, according to Lord Ashdown, her former high representative in Bosnia. The French believe we're duplicitous as well, but I just think this is terribly out of date. Here's the question. Uh, do we have a future common interest? Let's put the past behind us. Answer, yes. Are there practical ways that we can work together so we provide... Um, a better effect when both of us are together, yes. So I'm strongly in favour of this and always have been. Britain and France have agreed to keep at least one aircraft carrier at sea between them at any one time. Each will be able to use the other's carrier. But the Prime Minister rejects suggestions that this is the start of a new EU military force. This is not, as some have suggested, about weakening or pooling British or French sovereignty. This is not about a European army. This is not about sharing our nuclear deterrence. Let me say this plainly. Britain and France are, and will always remain, sovereign nations, able to deploy our armed forces independently and in our national interests when we choose to do so. But Lord Ashdown thinks the treaties are seen very differently on either side of the channel. I suspect that Liam Fox's view of this is different from Paris's view. He sees this as a bilateral relationship he can explain to the Tories with no European consequences. The French, I know because I've spoken to them, see this as the beginnings of growing an organic, wider European defence cooperation. And that is certainly not how the deal is being portrayed in Whitehall. For the French, this is a way for Europe to maximise its global influence, independent of the United States. Britain, though, will not want this to be seen as a counterweight to American power. 
Paul Osborne reporting. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me. And I'm also joined by Professor Gwyn Prince from the London School of Economics, where he specialises in security issues. Uh, hello, Professor Prince. Um, how significant do you think this deal is? Well, it's significant for the reasons that both Mr Jenkin and Lord Ashdown said. And Lord Ashdown's completely correct that this is seen uh, quite differently in Paris from the way that it's seen in London. Um, and the difference is what Mr. Jenkin expressed. Uh, this is a pursuit of a French interest. Uh, it's a pursuit of an interest which has two parts. One, to try and put distance between us and the Americans, and secondly, to pursue their own national interests. And uh, from that point of view, you can see quite clearly why the deal was being reported in the French press as historic and a moment of great triumph, and it was being described in Whitehall as hard-headed, which is, uh, in my experience, and Christopher will know this too, uh, always code word for meaning that we've had our trousers stolen. Christopher? I don't think we have, actually. Um, um, what it's... Uh, I, I suppose I go... I'm too old, really. I go back... <laughs> I go back years ago... You're young at heart, Christopher. Come on. <laughs> this is true. I go back many years ago when I was a very, very, very junior naval officer on the staff of uh, Sink Chan. And we produced the what was then the Marops for Stanith for Chan and Eastland, which involved the French. There is nothing in the naval side of this, plus the expeditionary side of this, plus the air side of this, that is any different except for one thing, and that is the Charles de Gaulle, the aircraft carrier, still doesn't work. Uh, Professor Prince, uh, do you think we've chosen the right partner in all of this? Of course we haven't chosen the right partner. America is, isn't it, Gwen? Of course it is, because that is our fundamental... But, but, but we are two countries. We are two countries that need to, to, to find money, need to fund a defence budget, and we're in terrible problems. Doesn't it make sense to pool our resources? Well, that begs the question of whether this is going to actually save any money, and I have absolutely no doubt that it will not save money. But let's just follow up the point that Christopher made, um, because he's quite right to take this, particularly for this audience, to the technical level. Uh, yes, the Charles de Gaulle doesn't work. The propeller fell off, some people may remember, in the Bay of Biscay. And nobody has yet managed to explain successfully how, if we ever buy any joint strike fighters, they're going to land on this thing without crashing through the deck. But more uh, technically, and rather more importantly, I was talking to some naval colleagues about this just yesterday, uh, to produce a common weapons inventory for French and British aircraft, such that they would be able to fly off this and off our putative aircraft carrier, if we actually ever have one that has cats and traps, um, is probably going to cost more money than putting both of our carriers into commission and operating them as proper carriers so that we actually have a national asset that can do what we need when we need it. And Mr. Jenkin is, of course, quite right to raise the hypothetical question of the South Atlantic. I heard Nick Robinson do exactly... You think, you think, not, you think not, do you, Christopher? No, what I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's all about politics, and it's also about our relationship with the United States. If the United States went off on an operation, we wanted to join in, the French would back off because the French wouldn't do anything with the United States. That is the political truth of it, and the military truth is, is largely... It could work, it could work, but not on the scale that people are talking about. Professor Gwyn Prince, thank well, you very much. This is SITREP on BFBS. 
You probably don't know much about rare earth metals and even if I ran through a list of the 17 metals that make up that group with unpronounceable names like lanthanum and neodymium, it wouldn't make things any clearer. But they're a vital component in many of the things that make our lives easier and some of the equipment our military relies on. And China's near total dominance of the market for rare earths is moving up the international agenda. This week, the Chinese have promised they won't abuse that dominant position, but the US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says the world must find other sources of rare earths, calling the current row a wake-up call. So why are they so important? Peter Foster is the Daily Telegraph's correspondent in Beijing. They're used in a whole range of modern technical applications in all sorts of things like flat screens or your iPad, your night vision goggles, for example, will use phosphorus. China controls about 97% uh, of the production of rare earth. Uh, it actually uh, probably only has about 30, 30 to 40% of, of actual uh, availability of rare earth. But what happened was that China invested huge amounts in rare earth in the, in the 1990s. China produced a lot of rare earth very cheaply. And everybody else in Australia, uh, South Africa and America uh, couldn't compete with the Chinese price. And so they uh, shut their mind. Some people say that Chinese flooded the market. Other people say simply that China produced the rare earth so cheaply that the companies and corporations that wanted to buy these rare earths just decided to buy them from China, at which point, if you ran a mine in Australia or America, you simply were out of business. China has actually been restricting uh, the export of rare earth, the quotas on rare earth, since 2006. But this year, in July, it slashed uh, its second half export quota by 70%, and suddenly everybody woke up. In some regards, the West dropped the ball on their rest. It allowed China to dominate the uh, production and supply chain. Uh, and suddenly, now China's really tightening uh, its stranglehold on the rare earth supply chain. Everyone's getting very jumpy. If you're a WTO lawyer, you might well think that these export quotas are, are designed to give Chinese companies a competitive price advantage. The price of rare earth has gone up uh, rapidly since the export quotas started to bite. But the important thing to know is that they've gone up much more rapidly for companies who are having them, using them outside China than inside China. So there's the incentive if you're making some very high-tech gadgets that use their earth to come to China. Peter Foster in Beijing. Christopher, um, what does China want out of all of this? Uh, it wants the political power that he can get by controlling the export. Um, a few weeks ago, suddenly customs and excise in, or customs in Shanghai stopped an export of rare earth to Japan big argy-bargy about this and they said, they just no, we're not, you're not getting it you're having too much. Then they stopped some on America. Now they've lifted it they've lifted it because Hillary Clinton's getting upset about it. They're doing something with us as well, but that's lifted guess why? Because next week David Cameron will be in Beijing Mm -hmm. You see, good and, timing, and it, it is because he can say, "Well, look, we, we've got to come to some arrangement about this." But it's like having oil; it's like having gas. These things are so rare earth. These seventeen components of rare earth are so important. What you can do with them that you can actually control how people do, uh, how how people are using them. Yeah, Chris, just explain a little bit more about why they are so vital. Ceramics, to ceramics, optics. The whole thing, if you want a missile, you've probably got a component of rare earth somewhere in the makeup, even in the guidance what's system. It, what's it actually do? What's it needed for? Why, why is it well, important ceramic, to a mobile the, phone, for example? Yeah, it can be in the ceramic side of it. It can be in the glazing. It's a, it's a protective. It can protect part of the system so that it can be used. It can be heat sensitive. Uh, it, it's rather like having... Um, 
Having a bowl, a ceramic bowl, that you can do things with in a laboratory, you use the components that are in the rare earth. It's, 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 it's like having gold. You put gold on certain things and they operate better, not just for glit. Uh, you mentioned that, that China has relented a little ahead of uh, David Cameron's visit. Do you think it will honour its promise not to exploit its dominant position no, long no, term? No, no, it won't. Just as the way that Russia doesn't uh, says it will, it's not going to exploit so how, its position of barter oil and gas, but does it every time there's a political reason to do it? So how do you see this, uh, this situation developing, do you think? It will continue like this until somebody can find an alternative source. But um, at the moment, I mean... Um, Is that likely? Uh, you can find a source, but can you get it out? Mm. Uh, and it's, again, we come back. The comparison with oil is very good. We know there's oil in the middle of the Atlantic, for example, but we haven't got the technology nor the finance to get it out until the price of oil is very high. And so it's the same with rare earths, and there can be places in Africa that's got, uh, they've got rare earth deposits, which we know about. The um, Australians have stopped developing theirs because it's too important and too expensive to mine. That's where we've got to at the moment. It's going to be a big political issue in the next 10 years. Finally this week, let's return to Britain's military cooperation deal with France. It sets up a joint expeditionary force, and that means 5,000 British soldiers could be under French command. How would they be at taking orders in French? In fact, uh, Christopher... How would you do with the French vocab? Appallingly, <laughs> appallingly. I've got a little French test I mean, you for just you. shout louder, don't you? <laughs> are really? you or you. I'm sure or, you do, yeah. Uh, OK, are you up for a little bit of a test? Y- yes, OK, yes. Uh, we've we got some uh, phrases uh, voiced up. Have a listen to this. Vous voudriez bien nous prêter votre porte-avion? Do you know what that means? No, but it must be keep, drive, your, drive your aircraft on the left. Uh, nearly. Do you want to listen again? No. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Vous voudriez bien nous prêter votre porte-avion? The accent is fantastic, I have to say. No. Notice French speaker there. Uh, it means, may we borrow your aircraft carrier? Right. OK, remember that one. No, I won't. Have a no. listen to this one. Because we won't Pierre lend it. ne pas tout sur gros bouton rouge. What do you think that means? Well, do you want to hear it again? No. Uh, well, it's a red boat or something. <laughs> Pierre de ne pas touche au gros bouton rouge. <laughs> what is this? Pierre's in a... Pierre's OK, think about the worst possible situation we could be in, in terms of the end of the world. I can't. Please don't touch the red button. No. That's it. Christopher, thank you. That's it this week. I should <laughs> go back right. to Russia. We want you back next week. Thanks for being here. Do get in touch if you've got any thoughts about the topics we've covered. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again at the same time next week. Bye-bye. This is SitRep on BFBS. News, sport and music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. BFBS Radio 2.